All right, let's get this show on the road. You guys ready? One person is ready. Excellent. That's, I'll take it. Like uh, Gideon, when he went out to uh, do battle, he started with 32,000 men, ended up with 300. So that's, that's good enough. Thank you, David. I appreciate it. But uh, like Gideon, and like what happened in, in the story of uh, Gideon, we'll, uh, David and I will win this victory, right? We'll be like, uh, like uh, who was it in, um, I think it was the, the Duke of, wasn't it the Duke of York in uh, Henry V, Shakespeare, who's, you know, you don't, want, you don't want any more men now? And he responds to the king, he says, God's peace, my liege, but you and I alone would be enough to this noble fight. All right, so, David, you and I alone are enough to this noble fight. We're going we're gonna to charge once more into the breach. Sound good? And the rest of, but the rest of them can come along for the ride. All right, we're going to cry God for Harry, England, and St. George. Right? And the Georges are from Wales, right? There were Georges at uh, the Battle of Agincourt. So, yes, I am... I am an Anglophile, and uh, Henry V is my favorite play by Shakespeare, so now you know. And um, my wife was born on October 25th, which is uh, St. Crispian's Day, the day the Battle of Agincourt was fought. So we don't really celebrate her birthday, right? We celebrate St. Crispian's Day. And I'm so glad she's not here today to hear me say that. <clears throat> Anyways, welcome. This is... Uh, Installment number three of Principia Theologia, right? Just the, uh, our, our, our basic, our basic uh, catechism, if you will, uh, here at Sharit Yisrael, Remnant of Israel Messianic Synagogue. So we are covering the basics. We're saying the quiet parts out loud. And we believe that the more things go without saying, the more they need to be said. So we're saying them also... For those of you who wish to be members, right? ideally everyone's paying attention, but for those of you who wish to be members, new members, this is our new members class, and we want you to understand the, uh, the, the basics of what we teach here, what we do here. So welcome to the class. You're encouraged to uh, participate. So when it comes to participation, here's a question. What have we covered thus far? Remind me. David, you got me? Help me out. What's that? Okay, right. Last week, Philip talked about the sovereign word of God. When we say that God's word is sovereign, what do we mean by that? Madison, go ahead. Okay, all right. Before, on, on our first class, two weeks ago, we talked about we talked about truth, the nature of truth. We covered things that we said were axiomatic, so I don't need to, I don't need to prove them when I, when I start using them as something I consider to be true. I just say that they're generally accepted and go from there, including the three laws of logic. Madison, remember those. Sovereign word of God. Uh, what else have we talked about? We talk about the word of God seems to imply that God exists, right? That the word of 
You know, if, if the word of someone is coming to me, that person therefore exists. Okay? If you recall, in Principia Theologia, the first part, there was no reference made to that sovereign word of God. Right? We started that in the second part, but the first part had no reference to the word of God because these things are not a matter of being religious, they're a matter of being rational. We encourage people to come to the truth of God, to come to the truth of God's revelation because we are giving proof. We are giving proof that people can think about, use their, use their intellects. I, I and no one in here expects someone to believe the word of God and then preach from it. That would be circular, circular reasoning. Right? We start from very basic principles. Right? And, and there's nothing wrong with reading the word of God. There's nothing wrong with reading it and being impacted by it and saying that this impact must be true to accept the inward witness of the Spirit. Right? We talked about the epistemological value of that, how we can know that it's true. And so here we are today. Is there anything else I'm missing? Anything else we, we covered that I'm, I'm forgetting? No? Okay, so it is valuable, it's very valuable that we, uh, that we discussed the value of Scripture. We have all sorts of reasons to believe that the 66 books that make up the compendium that we call the Bible are true. We have all sorts of good reasons. So we are now going to move forward accepting this book as true. And we've given reasons that we, are, that we say that it has that, again, what's, what's the word? Epistemological value. We can know that it's true. This is how we know we know. So we have... We have value there. We believe that God exists. We've talked about God. We've talked about Scripture. Today, uh, we're going to talk about man. So uh, I want to have a discussion on man today. Man is important. Man is important in, in God's creation, and we'll uh, discuss why that is so. Uh, first of all, I wanted to uh, just inter introduce, I'm going to give you kind of a long introduction, but I, I think it'll make sense. Uh, we, live in a, we live in a very confused world. And uh, you know, part of what we're doing, right, we want to do away with the confusion. Here, we want to talk about truth. We want to have people know truth. We want to do away with confusion. But the confusion in our world that we deal with daily, that we read news reports about, that impacts us, that is in some cases becoming part of our culture because it's coming in from various different places, none of them good, right? There's a lot of confusion. This confusion is confusion by choice. It's not confusion by ignorance, right? What do I mean by that? Let me give you an example, and this is kind of going to be an example of uh, the George family from years and years ago. Uh, we, were, we were driving along, and we had this Kleenex box in the car, a tissue box. If you, I, I don't remember the brand, and I shouldn't blame Kleenex for this, and you'll see why. But it was a, a box of tissues, and this box of tissues had printed on it. As I'm recalling, as I'm remembering this, it was, uh, 
little cartoon characters of SpongeBob. And these SpongeBob cartoon characters were doing math, but they were doing it all wrong. It was terrible. The, the, the SpongeBob cartoon character was, you know, he, he'd written out an equation, and in writing out this equation, it was, it was something like, you know, I don't know, seven plus four times three divided by two, or some weirdness like that, right? Wh- whatever it was, some sort of equation. And you were supposed to choose from a series of answers, but the right answer wasn't there. And the right answer wasn't there because whoever had done this, whoever had written out the equation, was not following the order of operations. He wasn't doing the math right. And so, you know, this, this just shows you the, the nature of the George family. My sister and I sat down and, and wrote out a detailed complaint to the company and my mother had to proofread it for us because we don't want to, you know, if you're telling someone else how wrong they are, you don't want any of your grammar to be wrong when you're telling them. That would be embarrassing. So we, we sent in a, a complaint to the company about their, their incorrect, you know, their, their failure to please excuse my dear Aunt Sally. Right? You'll recognize the mnemonic for the order of operations. And uh, uh, also, there was, there was a cartoon character. I'm remembering him. I, I could be wrong on this, but I'm remembering him as Mr. Krabs from SpongeBob SquarePants. And he, was, he had a piece of chalk, and he was pointing to an equation that said F equals one-half MA, right? And all the engineers in the room are bothered by that right now because F doesn't equal one-half MA. Newton's second law states that F is equal to MA. So this, this was just irritating. But it was very clearly confusion, right? It was it, this, this Kleenex box that so bothered the George family, right? And this, this is just proof that the George family truly puts the pedant in pedantic. We were so bothered by this, this confusion, this ignorance. They, they were saying things that were wrong. They were objectively wrong because of ignorance, it was not confusion by choice. Our society is beset on all sides by confusion by choice. So, you know, Mr. Krabs might have been ignorant of Newton's second law of motion. Uh, you know, you could say, hey, you know, I think that the entropy in a closed system stays at a constant level. No, but it doesn't. The entropy in a closed system increases to a maximum. That's the second law of thermodynamics. And you could be forgiven, easily forgiven, for making a mistake like that in ignorance. Because, for, for a number of reasons, first of all, ignorance is just a lack of knowledge. You can be taught. Second of all, we should be happy that we are, as human beings, pushing back the frontiers of ignorance in, certainly in, in, in matters of science. Right, that second law of thermodynamics I referenced previously, thermodynamics is pretty much a closed science. We know, we, we believe that we know everything there is to know about it. There, there's nothing more we need to learn about thermodynamics. We know how heat, how energy moves things. Done. And that knowledge, that knowledge is to the glory of God. Blessed be he. 
we, we know these things, the, the scriptures tell us that it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the, the, the scriptures say it's the glory of kings to search it out. But certainly each one of us who is learning things about the universe, man was given dominion over the universe, certainly we're kings in our own right. So my argument is that, yes, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it is the glory of all mankind to seek out these things, especially when we give glory to the creator who made these things that way. Right? But there's also confusion by choice. Right? There is broad confusion by choice in our society. And this confusion by choice only happens when you either make a conscious choice to deny the truth, to just deny it. Say things like, well, that's not my truth. Ugh. You know, again, everyone in the room who has, has any knowledge whatsoever would say, wait a second, if it's your truth but it's not my truth, then it's not truth at all. Truth is truth for everyone. All right, so you can deny the truth, or you can engage in mental gymnastics to try to convince yourself that something that you know is not true is actually true in some strange way. Right? Both, of these are, uh, both of these are ways that people engage in confusion by choice. People choose to be confused. They choose to be wrong. And these things are to the shame of mankind. These things are to the shame of the people who do them. Again, we've, we've talked about the, the value of Scripture, so now I'm going to bring Scripture into the things I'm talking about. Please open your book, to the, open your Bible to the first chapter of Romans. All right, we're going to talk about this, uh, this confusion by choice. Romans, the first of the epistles. I'm going to start in verse 18. I'm going to read uh, Romans 1, 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Pay attention, here it comes. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible, incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed things and creeping things. I'm going to stop there. We, we could continue. We could continue with what Paul says. But now, certainly Paul, in this case, is talking about the knowledge of the existence of God. He's, he's most certainly talking about, he's saying that mankind is without excuse when mankind denies the existence of God. That's certainly true. I would also argue that he's making the same argument against any truth, any truth that we intentionally deny, that we can see with our own eyes. 
that we can understand with our own minds, and that when we deny that truth, because all truth is God's truth, we are, we are guilty of suppressing the truth. And we're not just suppressing the truth for some morally neutral reason. No, we're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. So there is, uh, there is confusion. It's not confusion because we don't know things or because we can't know things. It's because we choose to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's very common in our society. And I, I feel old saying it, but it wasn't this way when I was a kid. It just wasn't. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't think I'm that old. I, I remember my parents saying things like this, but I'm, I'm shocked. I'm, I'm not all that old, and I'm certainly not wise, and I do think that wisdom comes with age. That being the case, I have never seen the, the confusion. I haven't read about the confusion. I, I, I don't think there was a time in history when people were this confused. And the suppression of the truth comes from unrighteousness. That's where it comes from. It's not because we don't know. We know all sorts of things. It's the glory of God to conceal matter. It's the glory of kings to search it out. And we've searched out all sorts of truth. And all truth is God's truth. And yet, we are more confused than we've ever been. The confusion by choice is ridiculous. It deserves ridicule, so I'm going to ridicule it, and uh, I'm, going to, uh, I'm going to introduce myself today with my pronouns. You ready? Yeah, they're already laughing, because it is, you should laugh, because it's ridiculous. All right, if I have to stand up here and, you know, you, if you can't hear, you know, every, every time I'm up there being the cantor, half the synagogue is complaining because I sing it in too low a key. For them, well, guess what? That's what you get for being tenors all your life and getting the lead in every other part. So there you go. First of all, I, I make no apology for singing things in a low key. All right? But guess what? Men have low voices. You're encouraged and welcome to assume my gender. All right? Men grow hair on their faces. But yes. It, and it is ridiculous, and you're encouraged to laugh, but I'm going to introduce myself with my pronouns. I'm going to tell you why. It's actually going to make sense. All right, so welcome to Remnant of Israel, Sharit Israel, Messianic Synagogue. My name is Joe George. My pronouns are we and us. Hear me out. Stop laughing. It is ridiculous, and you're welcome to ridicule it, and I am ridiculing it. But let me tell you why my pronouns are we and us. Uh, because I am married to my wife, Emily George, and we as, we as this synagogue have, have been lax in this. We as a society are sometimes lax in appreciating ourselves for the relationships that we have. Our master told people that from the beginning, from the beginning, God made them male and female, 
And what God has joined together, man should not separate. So a very important part of who I am is the relationship that I have with another human being, my wife. So that's the we and the us that I'm using. It is part of the nature of man to form these relationships. We form various relationships. We have various relationships. By, by the nature of existing, we have various relationships. So today, in the third part of our, our, our very basic introduction to our worldview, I'm going to talk about man. And I'm going to do that by discussing the nature of various relationships that man has. We're going to talk about our relationship to nature. How are we... How do we relate to nature? What's our relationship there? I'm going to talk about our relationship to the mind, to the spirit. Our relationship to other men, mankind in general. How do, how do we get along with ourselves on, in, a, in a horizontal direction? And I'm going to talk about our relationship with the Almighty. Blessed be He. We have a relationship with Him. Each one of us has, has that relationship, whether we choose to acknowledge it or not. We can abuse that relationship. We can harm that relationship. We have the moral freedom to do those things. But, uh, you know, ideally we shouldn't do that. So, relationships. I'm going to talk about relationships today. What is man? Let me get started. We're going to talk about what man is. I'm going to get started... By, uh, by telling you what man is not. So let me, let me define terms really quickly. Uh, first of all, I want to define the word faith. All right? Faith, as, as I'm going to use it throughout this, throughout this discussion, and as I'd like us to start using it, I, and um, hear me out, as I'd like us to start using it in this synagogue, faith is, is the, the fundamental tenets of our worldview. This is the way that uh, Jude uses it when he tells us to contend for the faith that has once and for all been delivered to the saints. Right? That, that faith is the, the tenets of, of what we believe. I want to distinguish that from the word trust when we say that we have, when we say that we have faith in Yeshua Hamashiach, when we say we have faith in Jesus Christ, we're kind of speaking Christianese. And here's the problem: uh, today the word faith is often paired with what other word? Blind. That's right, blind faith, or leap of faith. It's, it's a direction our language has gone. And what we're saying here in this series and, and everything we proclaim here, I'm asking you to look at fact and then make a decision to trust. I'm not asking for a leap of blind, stupid faith. Other people do that. Satan does that. Other worldviews do that. I don't want that. All right? Our synagogue does not want that. 
So I want to use the word trust when we talk about, for example, the trust we place in Yeshua for our salvation. That's trust, right? different than faith. For example, we could use faith in the way that we talk about uh, the Islamic faith. There are five pillars of the Islamic faith, five things that you're expected to profess and do if you are a Muslim. Right? In, in the same way, there are, there are tenets of our faith, and that's how I'm using the word. Also, I want to define the term naturalistic materialism. I'm going to just call it materialism. It's not, when, I, when I say materialism, it's not the, the desire for things. It's not greed. Sometimes the word has been used that way. When I talk about naturalistic materialism, I'm talking about a worldview, a worldview that says that time, space, matter, and energy, and the laws that govern them are the only things that exist. Nothing exists if they're not made up of those things. Again, I'm just going to call this uh, materialism for the most part. This is a worldview. Again, the, where I'm going with this. Man. What is man? I'm going to tell you what man is not. And I'm going to introduce, many of us are familiar with these worldviews, but I'm, I'm going to hold them up as potential models of how reality could actually be and show why they're, why they're lacking. This is going to show us what man is not. Sometimes they'll, they'll grab a part of, of the truth, but they'll also leave very important parts of it out. So, uh, materialism, naturalistic materialism. You can call it matterism if, if you want. All that exists is the, the physical things that we see and the laws that govern those physical things. This is the worldview of many uh, so-called skeptics, humanists, atheists, and uh, interestingly enough, Satanists. This is their worldview. Uh, this worldview is wrongly considered to be a neutral worldview. It is not. It's not morally neutral. It's, it is antithetical to our worldview. And it is antipathetic. It has antipathy. It fights our worldview. It's not neutral. Some people say, oh, well, the, the secular worldview is, is what, what should, should, you know, be in, for example, the public square. Uh, this worldview could be paraphrased as, uh, in the beginning, there were the particles, because the particles are all that exist. So, this, in this worldview, what is man? Well, man is just the natural. Man is just stuff. Man is just matter. There's, there's matter in my body. There's energy in my body. These things are interacting. And that's it. That's all there can be. Right? Th this worldview rejects the, the existence of the divine. So because it rejects the existence of the divine, man cannot have in himself something that is inherently divine. We, we look at this worldview and we reject it. We don't reject it because we're religious. Like the, the way I'm using the word religious to just believe in a certain worldview and act upon it 
right? by that definition of, of this word, the, the, uh, the people that follow this worldview are also religious. They have a worldview. They act on it. We have a worldview. We act on it. We don't reject this worldview because we're religious. We reject it because we're rational. And this is why we reject this worldview. First of all, this worldview cannot account for morality. And when we're, when we're studying mankind, one of the things that we see about mankind is that we are, we are moral actors. We are free moral actors. We can make moral choices. This worldview does not accept the existence of morality. Morality cannot be real. Morality is not made of time, space, matter, and energy. And morality is not one of the laws that govern those things. Okay, I'm familiar. You're, some of you will be saying, oh, well, morality is just economic game theory writ large on the human species. I'm, I'm familiar with that theory. And there are all, all sorts of reasons that we can reject that theory. It doesn't work. Right? If, if that theory is true, then when someone dies, we should be happy because that person is no longer taking up resources that could go to me. And what I've just described is an immoral point of view. Because it's immoral, that theory is contradicted by what we know about moral reality. So we reject the worldview. We, we reject matterism materialism because it cannot account for morality. And we do it for a number of reasons. First of all, I can show you a debate between uh, a gentleman named uh, David Silverman and Frank Turek. Uh, Dr. Turek is a, I'd, I'd say he's a well-known Christian apologist. Uh, David Silverman, it's, it's fairly humorous, and you've got to hear me out on this. He introduced himself saying, my name is David Silberman, and my parents thought that naming me Jew would not be Jewish enough, so they named me David Silberman, right? So he is an ethnic Jewish man, but his argument is in favor of atheism, and in order to argue in favor of atheism, keep in mind he's Jewish, they go through this debate, and then he finally has to admit that there was nothing wrong with the Holocaust, because there's no morality. And that's, that's the quiet part, that when the atheists are honest, they'll say it out loud. They know that people don't like to hear that. They know that our argument against them is that morality exists, therefore they must be wrong. But when you drill down into this worldview, you will find that, and uh, I, I think I'm quoting Richard Dawkins, a high priest of atheism, fairly accurately, when he says that there is no good, there is no evil, there's only blind, pitiless indifference. So we reject this worldview for that reason. Interestingly enough, we also reject it if you, if you steal something from an atheist, right, God forbid, you shouldn't steal. You shouldn't steal because God exists and he tells you not to. But if you were to steal something from an atheist, that atheist would say, hey, that's wrong. But wait a second, I thought you said there's no morality. Okay, there's only morality when you're stealing from me. Really? No. 
this, this worldview that says that man is only physical fails. We reject it because we can trust our moral intuition. And my argument in support of that statement is kind of beyond the scope of what I'm saying today. But we can trust our moral intuition. And this model tells us there's no morality. Therefore, we reject it because it doesn't explain reality. Okay, so man's relationship to nature. Right? We are not just nature. We are not just natural. We are physically natural things. That's true. We're physically made of, uh, we're physically made of matter, energy. We take up space. We act in time. We are governed by those, those natural laws that govern time, space, matter, and energy. That's true. But there is more to man than that. Right? You have a soul. The soul is, when, when you introspect, that's the thing that you're seeing. Right? When you, uh, you know, that, that sense of morality that is in you. That, that's what that is. There, there's something more to man than just time, space, matter, and energy. Right, which, which helps us answer, partially answer, what, it, what is man, and helps us along the way to reject uh, this purely materialistic worldview. Any questions or discussion on that? No? David, anything? You and me alone would be enough for this noble fight. But it's not really noble if there's no God. Noble's making a moral claim, right? It's not really noble. Just one more thing we'd have to throw out. Okay, so man is not just nature. Man is also not just mind. This is, I'm going to define a term, we're going to call it monism. Monism is not as common in the West. A lot of us have not been exposed to monism, and if we have... Uh, we've probably been exposed to it in either in an academic setting or uh, potentially in a in a in a religious setting that we were we were unprepared for that. Monism is the idea that uh, it starts with in the beginning there was the mind, and the mind is actually all that exists. Uh, this is consistent with uh, the New Age. It is consistent with some forms of uh, Eastern religion, right? And again, we in the West have not had a lot of experience with this. But the idea is that you are, you are a part of the divine mind, and that's really all that exists. Everything else you see is this stuff, this matter. It's not really real. That's an illusion. Uh, the, the, the word that they would use for it is maya. It's, it's not real. You're not your physical body is not real. Your, your physical body is an illusion. And there's this, this great universal mind that is, you are part of it, and part of that, that worldview, that the re religious expression of that worldview is trying to remind yourself of that and get back to that. There are a number of reasons to uh, reject this worldview. Right? This worldview has to reject objective physical reality. We, we look at objective physical reality, we say it's axiomatic that these things do actually exist. We covered that in our first lecture. We say, I can have, I trust 
that the information that my senses are giving me, that information is real and that information is objective outside of me. So that's why we reject this uh, mindset. Also, uh, Ravi Zacharias, who certainly had some of his own problems, but he spoke well of this worldview when he says, even in India, we look both ways before we cross the street. And what he's saying is that despite the official belief that everything is Maya, that, that nothing is actually real, I think that car that's about to run over me is real. So I look both ways. Why should I? Why should I, why should I do anything? Why, if, if reality doesn't exist, why should I care if my body gets hurt? That's fake. That's, that's, that's an illusion. I need to get back to the, the, the ultimate mind. So, so this, this worldview, uh, we, we reject this worldview because it doesn't give us a good model of reality. And it doesn't give us a good model of reality for a number of reasons. The, the biggest one is its rejection of, of the physical world. So on, on one extreme, we've got matterism, materialism, that says only the physical exists. On this other side, we've got people saying only the spirit, or only the mind, or whatever it is. Only, that's all that exists. All right, neither one of those uh, uh, show, show a good picture of reality. Now, so man's relation to nature. Our physical bodies are natural. That's true. Man's relation to spirit or the mind. We have a spirit inside of us. We do not have, we do not have a chunk of God inside of us, a chunk of the universal mind. These, these things are not... You know, to say that the universe is part of God would, would be heresy. We're not saying that. But we have a mind. But we are not only mind and we are not only matter. So that's man's relationship to the physical and man's relationship to the mind. Now let's talk about, uh, let's talk about man's relationship to God. I'm going to define a few terms here. Uh, I want to define theism. Thus far in what we've talked about, we're only getting to a theistic concept of God. That means that God is a person. Right, and this, this theistic concept, God could theoretically be a person who is connected through the universe. We'd call that pantheism. We don't, we don't believe that, but that is, that is a theistic concept. It could broadly fall within the theistic category. Right, when we talk about theism, we're talking about God as a person who is separate from his creation. But that's, that's all we've done thus far. This could be that the God that we're talking about, logically thus far, could be uh, the Unitarian God of Islam. Could be Allah. This God could be the Unitarian God professed by non-Messianic Jews. Or the Unitarian God professed, for example, by... Uh, cult groups like the, uh, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses or something like that, Aryans. Uh, we're not on, we're, we'll, we'll talk about the nature, the, the nature of God later from things that we know, things that we can understand, but uh, we're not there yet. So theism, theism, the belief that, that God exists and that he is a person. 
and all the Star Wars fans are disappointed that he's not a force that binds us and penetrates us and holds the universe together. I got it. Get over it. Now, I also want to talk about, uh, I want to talk about man. I'm going to need to define some terms here. Uh, man, for the most part, I'm going to refer to man as what I call X chromosome man. If, if you guys are having a difficult time with your biology, right? We have, we have a Supreme Court justice who's not a biologist, doesn't know what a woman is. Again, to her shame, and she should be mocked for it. It's ridiculous, and it deserves ridicule. So if, if anyone in here is confused on human genetics, we all have X chromosomes. When I talk about X chromosome man, I'm referring to all of mankind. I'll also need to talk about Y chromosome man, specifically the male sex of the human race. And I will, from time to time, differentiate between Y chromosome man and woman, right? But those two groups are what make up X chromosome man, mankind. Uh, let's see, any other terms do I need to define? Uh, yes, uh, some terms that I need to define. Uh, as we're reading through the text, we're going to see the term B'Tselem uh, Elohim, right? Tselem uh, is, is the image or the picture uh, the, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar set up was called the Selim, the Tselem, right? It's got a tzada on it. Sometimes it's hard for us to pronounce. Uh, Selim Elohim is how man was created in the image of God. I'll also use the term imago dei. Uh, also, uh, tov meod. Tov meod, very good. Uh, tov is good. It's exactly what it sounds like. Uh, meod is abundant or excessive even. So when you say very good, it's really good. Right? And that's how God made the world. So with terms defined, uh, let's continue. Let's talk about man's relationship to God. And the best place to start is back at the beginning. Right? We'll go back to the beginning and I'll remind you that our story, as opposed to these other stories that we've been talking about, our story, our model, starts with in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And, and part of that, that physical creation is going to be the man. So uh, God created a perfect world. It was perfect. It was Tov Meod. Uh, open your Bibles, please. First part. We're going to read Genesis. We're going to start in Genesis, the first chapter. We're going to start in verse 26. And we're going to go through uh, the second chapter, verse 4. So, the creation account. The word of the true and living God. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, 
Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb yielding seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. Tov meod. So the evening and morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended the work that he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So uh, back to the beginning, right? I told you these things would be basic. They are very basic. We're starting right in the beginning. Uh, notice one of the commandments that God gives to the man is to take dominion. That's important. We're going we're gonna to talk about that later. Keep that in mind, please. Notice that God made a perfect world. The proper relationship of man to God is the relationship of growing in perfect love, perfect holiness, and understanding of God. I, I recently had a friend ask me why God made man. And actually, the Scripture doesn't tell us why, but we can extrapolate from the Scripture as to why. God wanted man to share in God's goodness. God is good. And he wants to share that goodness with the things that he's created. Now notice that this perfectly good creation, it's perfectly good, it's tov meod, it's very good. God looked down, and in God's estimation, in the estimation of the perfect, true and living God, the omniscient, true and living God, the all-powerful God, this was very good. Notice that a part of that goodness is man's freedom. Man at this point in time was a free moral actor. He was able to freely make moral choices. And the, the proper use of that freedom is to continue living with God, to live forever with God. Death is not a part of this. God didn't make death. To continue being with God, to appreciate God's goodness... That is, that is the proper relationship of man to God. We also see from the Genesis account, right, it's amazing how many things are in the first three chapters of this book. We also see from the Genesis account, man, now I'm going to talk about why chromosome man, man's relationship to the woman. Right, how, is, how, are, how are the man and the woman supposed to interact? What are they supposed to do? Well, let's open back up to the first, very first part. What's going on here? Let's, let's read. Let's find out. We can learn about man's proper relationship. First of all, it's been said 
as you read through the creation account, you read through the, the very broad picture of creation in the first chapter of Genesis. The second chapter focuses in on the man. It's been said that, oh, well, these, these must be two accounts that some ancient redactor smashed together. No, that's not the case. And I, I can tell you about the, the Battle of Gettysburg in the war between the states. Uh, the, the Battle of Gettysburg, the... Uh, the, the Confederates actually came in from the north. Uh, the Federals came in from the south. That was the first day. The second day, the, the Confederates attacked the, the flanks of the Federal force. That was the second day of Gettysburg. The third day, the, the Confederates attacked the Federal center in a, in a great charge. That was the Battle of Gettysburg. Oh, yeah, and by the way, on the second day, let me tell you about a guy named Joshua Chamberlain. Right? This is clearly one account where I've given you the big picture, and then I wanted to focus on something that I think is important. The same way in the Genesis account. Right? This is one account. And the most important thing in that account, right, one of the questions we're asking today is, what is man? Well, man is the most important thing in this account. Well, God is the most important thing. God's the person doing it all. But of the created things, man is the most important. And so man gets his own chapter. So let's start in uh, Genesis, the second chapter. Let's go ahead and start in, uh, in verse 15. All right? this, this perfection, this perfect place had been created. And it had been, been created as a place where God, God was. His, his presence was there. Later in, this, later in this account, we're going to hear about the man heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. He was familiar with that sound. He'd heard that before. Right, this is a place where God and man could be together and where man, in his proper relationship with God, could experience the goodness of God, both in the things that, that God had created and in experiencing God's perfection because he's with the very person of God, the proper relationship of man to God. Here's the proper relationship of the man, Y-chromosome man, to the woman, X-exclusive chromosome man, woman. All right, so we'll start in uh, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. So again, you see here that man has, man has a job, tend it, keep it. Man has meaningful work to do assigned by God himself. Work is not part of the curse. Drudgery, toil... That's part of the curse, but work is not part of the curse. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree in the garden you may freely eat. But notice that there's one rule, one rule that defines the relationship, that forms a boundary in the relationship of man to God. One rule in this relationship. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. All right, so we see the proper relationship right here. This is it. This is the proper relationship of the man, of the male to the female. That the female is a helper comparable to him. Notice that this, this relationship is 
there, there is probably an element of, of subordination in this. She's a helper. But the status of helper does not diminish her. I'm a lieutenant colonel in the United States Army. My boss is also a lieutenant colonel in the United States Army. Because I'm a, a helper for him, that doesn't mean I'm less in any way. All right, so what's going on here? So I will make, so this is in verse 18, I will make him a helper comparable to him because there's nothing else like the man. The man was made, but Selim Elohim, in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. And there's another one that's going to be like him in that way. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the, closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib, which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. This is the proper relationship. This is as it was intended to be by the Creator. So pay attention. Here it comes. And Adam said, This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam looks at this amazing creature and he recognizes this is like me. I've seen everything else. I've seen everything else. I've given names to everything else. Nothing else was like me. And the Almighty, blessed be he, he agreed with that. Nothing was comparable to him. It's not good that the man should be alone. I'm going to make something comparable to him. The man recognizes this, and this is the way it's supposed to be. A helper comparable to him. And again, notice what the scripture says. This is how it's supposed to be. This is true before the fall. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. As it is supposed to be, the relationship of man to woman. And notice how in this perfect relationship, notice how it ends. Right? Again, first, the proper relationship can aptly be defined as one man and one woman becoming one flesh for one lifetime. This is how it's supposed to be. And if you have any doubt of that, if you don't think that's the way it's supposed to be, find out what our master said. He was asked about marriage, get this weird trick question about marriage, and how does he respond? He says, well, <laughs> you simpletons, haven't you ever read? Of course they've read. That from the beginning, this is how it was done. This is the proper relationship. Man to the woman. And it's actually very beautiful how it ends, right? Notice how this description of a proper relationship ends. Without, without sin, as it is supposed to be, they were naked and they were not ashamed. That to us is crazy talk. What do you mean naked and not ashamed? That doesn't make any sense. 
I wear clothes when I'm in bed. I get up, I change into other clothes. I have walls around my shower so that people don't look at me when I'm naked. What do you mean they were naked and unashamed? They had nothing of which to be ashamed. This is how God made us. This is our proper relationship, man to woman. And without sin, they were naked and they were not ashamed. Man's proper relationship to others. Right? Man's proper relationship to others. Remember that man is made, but Selim Elohim. Man is in the imago Dei. Man is in the image of God. It is man's proper relationship to others. My proper relationship to Modesto, my proper relationship to David, is to carry the image of God, is to show how God is. That's part of my job, and that's the proper relationship of X-chromosome man to X-chromosome man. That's the proper relationship of X-chromosome man to the rest of the world. To take dominion, not to take dominion in a harsh or cruel way, but to show the loving will of the Father. That is the proper relationship. Also notice how I am to treat in the same way that my job in the Imago Dei is to communicate that, to spread that image. It is also my job to respect the Imago Dei, to respect Selim Elohim, the image of God in other people. Man is beautiful. Humankind is made in the image of God. We are beautiful. We are not beautiful because of what we do. We are not beautiful because of the things our ancestors have done. We are beautiful because of what we are, because of our being ontologically. We've covered that word before. Because of what we are, because of the image of God, we are beautiful. And again, note that these other worldviews that I've discussed have no explanation for human rights. In this country, in this country, we talk about the origin of human rights. Our founding document says we hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men, X chromosome man, all men are created equal. And that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. We are endowed by that creator with these rights because we are in his image. As he is a free moral actor, we are free moral actors. As he is invisible, we are visible and we take his image to the rest of the world. We bear that image. This is another reason that we accept our worldview because no other worldview can explain the things that, that are inside of us. No other worldview can explain man's desire for freedom, man's desire for justice. We explain it by saying that we're in the image of God. How does anyone else explain it? They, they don't. Again, Go on YouTube, look, David Silverman versus Frank Turek. It's later in the debate, you'll have to go through the debate, but he says, yeah, Holocaust wasn't wrong, because there is no right and wrong. This is not consistent with reality. 
But what we are saying, that every human being, by the way, every human being from the instant that you become a human being, which is conception, every human being is valuable, not because of anything else, but because man is in the image of God. It's so important that man is in the image of God that the Almighty, blessed be he after the fall, outlaws murder, the willful destruction of that image of God by saying death. Interestingly enough, there's one commandment that is repeated in all five books of the Torah. It's not the commandment to wear zitzot. It's not the commandment to not eat swine. The one commandment that is in all five books of the Torah is that murderers get the death penalty. That's one picture of how important the image of God is. When you willfully destroy the image of God, your very life is required by justice. So man's proper relationship is to bear the image of God. Now, we've talked about proper. I'm, I know, it's a long, long discussion. Uh, coming close to wrapping it up. Be patient with me. We've talked about the proper relationship. We've talked about the proper relationship of man to God. We've also talked about the relationship of man to mind, man to nature, the proper relationship of man to God, the proper relationship of man to woman, the proper relationship of X chromosome man to other X chromosome man, and also to nature. What are we supposed to do? This is how things are supposed to be. Now, every one of us knows this is something I know in my heart. This is something you know in your hearts. You know I know it. I know you know it. Everyone knows something's wrong. Something's wrong with the world. Again, notice these other worldviews can't explain something being wrong with the world. Our worldview explains it. Our worldview is an entire thick book about how things went wrong and how God is fixing them. All right, but if, if all we are is time, space, matter, and energy, there's no wrong. It's just the way it is. And again, the, those who hold that worldview will agree with me. And if you're just, a, in reality, a disembodied mind making your own reality, why do you make it this way? There's nothing wrong with that either. I've talked about proper relationships. What is man? We're... In, in this discussion, we're defining man by his relationships. Man was made perfect, and part of this perfection was freedom. So now I'm going to tell you what went wrong. Because you're, thus far, if, if you're listening to me, you might not be. That's okay. David's listening. All right. You've said, wait a second, you've talked about me, the, the proper relationship, but this proper relationship that you've described is not what I see. It's not reality. Your entire argument to reject these other worldviews has been, it's a good model of reality. We have a good model of reality, they don't. So we reject those and we take this. 
but now you've talked about proper relationships, and ain't nothing you said is true. Man is not living with God, growing in holiness and truth and perfection. That is not true. You're right. Man does not have a perfect relationship with one woman. That's not true. Man does not bear the image of God to his fellow man and to nature. Instead, he mars the image of God. We started out talking about how there's intentional confusion. There's confusion by choice. Man is going out and lying. Man is going out and destroying. Right, congratulations, Kansas. You know, you're, you just voted to keep murdering men. Good job. Three out of every five of your voters are good, good with that. This, the, the, the proper relationships that Joe is describing right now are obviously not true. You're right. So let me tell you what went wrong. Be patient with me. Into this perfection, there comes a rebel. And this rebel is telling lies. Already, in this, in, in Tov Meod, it's very good. Perfect. It's perfect in every way. Not only is, is, is the man living in this, this beautiful garden, he can reach out, take from the tree of life, and live forever, as it should be. This is true, but the entire universe is perfectly created according to God's will. We, we've talked about, previously, we've talked about the, the teleological argument, the argument of the existence of God from design. Everything is exactly right. Exactly right. The physicists and the engineers in here are, are really excited that the, the, the gravitational constant of the universe is perfect. It's exactly where it needs to be. The relationship between the, the weak nuclear force and the strong nuclear force is exactly where it needs to be. It's so amazing. We live in a world where, where there's cause and effect. We live in the, the perfect spot in the, in the Milky Way galaxy. That's in the, and, and this planet is in the perfect orbit around the sun. It's just perfect. And if you think that all came about just by chance, then not, not faith, but you have great trust. You have amazing trust in nothing, right? But this is perfection. This was, excuse me, this was perfection. What I'm talking about, this was perfection. It was exactly as it should be. And there was no sin. The relationship between the man and the woman was perfect. They were naked and they were unashamed. But into this perfection comes a rebel. Into this perfection comes a usurper. Someone who doesn't like this created order. It, 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 and it seems from other places in, in this book, in the, this model of reality that we're presenting, that this person, right, he's real. Yes, Satan is real. The devil is real. Right, this, this person is called a nachash. That's translated as serpent. 
Right? It, it's also, the, the wording in there is also consistent with a shining one, a bright morning star. This nakash. Interestingly, the, the, the Hebrew verb nakasha, I think, is to deceive. This shining one, this deceiver, this serpent, lies. And these two lies, by the way, are the basis of every lie that's ever been told. He lies. And what were these two lies? The first lie, did God really say? Did God really say that? And yes, every lie is at least tangentially related to these lies. Right? When, you know, my, my, again, this, this middle child of mine, she's not here today, she, she managed to blow out her knee. She'll be fine, good medical care, but she's crypt up today. She questioned me on that the other day. I said that all these lies, every, every lie you've ever heard has, is, has its root in these lies. And this is true, let me explain. She said, well, what if, what if I said I didn't steal the cookie from the cookie jar, but I really did? Okay, how, how is that related to did God really say? Well, all truth is God's truth. And when you're questioning, when, when you are making a statement with malicious intent to deceive, when you are harming the truth, truth is, again, that you know, we're not going to define it as that which is full of truthy goodness. We're not going to use the word to define itself. Truth is that which is consistent with reality, and God made reality. God spoke reality into existence. So when you are lying, ultimately, yes, you are questioning, did God really say that? Is that really? Is that really real? Did God really do that? Yes, he did. Did God really say and that opens the door for the next lie. And what was the next lie? You will be like God. And every time that you try to convince yourself that something you're doing that you know is wrong is actually right, you're trying to bend morality to suit your nature. Let me give you a hint. Morality suits God's nature. You're not like God. And don't get me wrong. If I, was, if I was choosing my own religion, I would choose to follow the, the Nakash. I would choose that. I can look inside myself and see that I would do that. I don't blame Adam and Eve for what they did. Right? And again, the, this story tells us that the woman was deceived, but the man to whom dominion had been given, he knew what he was doing. And I understand it. Because that lie speaks to me. I like that. Surely God did not say, for you will be like God. If I was choosing my own religion, I think I've told you guys this before, but if I was just choosing my own religion, I would choose Satanism. Because it's, it's what fits my flesh you will be like God. Don't blame Adam and Eve. Because I'm telling you right now, I would, I, would, I would have made the same decision. These lies, 
are the foundation of everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And they always have been. So into perfection comes a rebel, someone who does not want to live in God's perfect order. And he convinces, he tricks the woman, yes, he convinces the man. And the man to whom this whole thing had been given, the man who received the commandment, take dominion, this is yours. You are in my image, bear my image, be in charge of this. In that moment of free moral choice, the man breaks the world. The world is broken. That's true. We see things that we look at them and we, we know that they are wrong. They shouldn't be that way. We recently had some brothers and sisters from, a, from another congregation lose a child. A five-year-old child just died. I, I don't know why. It shouldn't be that way. We see things that should not be the way they are. And we conclude, not because we're religious, but because we're rational, that the world is broken. How could a good God do this? How could a good God allow that? This is a reasonable question. It's a good question. Let me answer. How could a good God create a world where these things can happen. Because a good God loves moral freedom. The proper relationship of the man to God is making a free moral choice to enjoy God's goodness and live forever in paradise. That is God's perfect will. That is what God wants for every one of us. Every one of us. He does not desire the death of any man Imagine it this way. I've got, I've got my, my child here, so I'm going to use her. Right? And I, I create something. Something beautiful. Something intricate. A cell phone. No, something better than that. I'm, I'm envisioning it, for some reason, like a ship in a bottle or a, a, a snow globe, something made out of glass. Right? And I take this, this beautiful thing because I'm a good, because I'm good, right? Again, I'm, I'm God in this analogy, so I am morally perfect. But the man at the time was morally perfect too. And because of my moral goodness, I want to give good things to the creatures that I have created to help them enjoy my presence perfectly forever. And I take this good thing, this beautiful, intricate thing, in which there is the tree of life so that you can live forever. I've also created you in a way that you can make that choice. Now, because it's a free moral choice, you have the choice to do something else. And I take this beautiful, intricate thing, and I give it to you, and I say, this is yours. Take dominion over it. And my child responds with, is it really mine? I say, yes, it's really yours. That's yours. I gave it to you. I made a choice to give you dominion over it. And my child responds, I want to break it. It's going to be beautiful as it shatters into a million pieces on the floor. I want to destroy it. Okay. 
It's yours. I gave it to you. I told you to take dominion. I told you to do that. Okay. Don't really break my cell phone. <laughs> How could a good God allow that? Because he didn't create robots. He created free moral beings. That was part of the perfectness. That was part of Tov Meod. Free moral beings that had a free choice to love God, and instead they choose to listen to the lies. Because the lies sound great. I'm telling you, the lies sound great. And I'm if I, had a, if I could, I would believe those lies. I'm telling you right now, because they sound wonderful. That's what makes a lie good. Not, not good in a moral sense, but an effective lie. Sounds great. If I was choosing my own religion, right? I, don't, I didn't choose him. He chose me. And he's, he's, he chooses all of you, too. If we had a choice, right? That's his choice. I'm starting to sound like a Calvinist. Except I have a sense of humor, so I'm not Calvinist. Anyways, in one act of rebellion, man breaks the world. So our relationship to other men is broken. Turn to 1 John. 1 John, it's close to the back. All of John's stuff is in the back. The revelation that was given to John. 1 John. Of course, the gospel of John's a little bit farther up front. 1 John, chapter 2. Verses 15 through 17. Uh, just as a reminder, all right, if you've read through, if you've read through Growing to Maturity, right, Dan Jester's book, the, the guy who's rabbi emeritus of the denomination we belong to, he quotes this as well. I, uh, I'm, I'm happy to cite him, and I'll, I'll remind you that there's, there's a number of citations I should make. A uh, number of the arguments I'm making in this entire series are from Frank Turek's book, Stealing from God. And, um, and the outline of the series comes from Greg Kokel's book, The Story of Reality. That's what this is, reality. We are sharing the most real things in the world with you in Principia Theologia. So I'm, I'm getting a lot of this material from other places, but Dan Juster does a very good job in the description of our current relationship to other men. Uh, by quoting the beloved apostle who writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, what's in the world? Here, here we go. Here's a list. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It is not of the Father, but it is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Now remember, our relationship to other men was supposed to be, our relationship to other men and to nature, to creation, was supposed to be bearing the image, bearing the imago dei elsewhere. That's not what it is now. John's description of us is very apt. We love the world. We love the lust of the flesh. I know I do. We love the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. 
right? How did I introduce myself, uh, right? My, my, my plural, my, or excuse me, my, my pronouns, right? We and us, right? But how do we usually introduce ourselves? Hi, my name is Joe. I go to the gym, right? The pride of life, right? How, how, do, we, how do we usually think of ourselves? Me first. You will be like God. Man's relationship to other men is now broken. It's broken because we broke it. And hold on a second. God understands. Okay? We, we do not have, the writer of the book of Hebrews talks about this. We don't have a high priest who doesn't understand us. God understands this. Don't think of God as someone who doesn't understand this. We'll get there. We'll be patient with me. But God understands. Right? Because we harmed him first. We made the choice to reject him. So he understands when we make the choice to reject other men. He understands this. Man's relationship to woman. Why chromosome man's relationship to woman is broken. Open your Bibles, please, to the last prophet to speak, Malachi. Some people think that Haggai or possibly Zechariah actually wrote the book of Malachi. Malachi might not be a proper name. It means my messenger. Malach is messenger. Malachi is my messenger. Malachi 2. Malachi 2 verses the second part of verse 13 through uh, 16. So he does not regard the offering anymore nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Here it comes. You ready for it? Because the Lord, blessed be he, has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit. And let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. Now pay attention. These are the words of the true and living God. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Is this not the relationship now? My encouragement to you is if you have been abused in marriage, if you have been abused by a member of the opposite sex, if you've been abused by a member of the same sex, if you've been abused in some way that was not meant for abuse, that relationship is broken, it's harmed. God understands. He understands better than any one of us. He wants to restore it. Finally, man's relationship to God. Man's relationship to God is broken. Turn to Isaiah. Yeshayahu. The 53rd chapter. Many of us are familiar with the 53rd chapter. You know what's coming. I'm only going to read a little tiny chunk of it because we'll get to most of this next week. Isaiah 53, verse 6. Just the first part for now. This aptly describes our relationship with God. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. 
We have turned every one to his own way. We'll stop there. I also want to define the word hamartiology. It's a big word, hamartiology. Hamartiology is the study of sin. When we study sin. Right, this, this is an excellent passage. We all, every one of us, like sheep, have gone astray. You ever deal with sheep? It's just the dumbest things in the world. They're so irritating. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. Right? We, we had a choice. And we listened to, oh, did God really say? Did God really say that? No, God can't be trusted. From the day that you eat it, your eyes will be opened. And here it comes. You ready for it? And you will be like God. And we said, yeah, that sounds great. I want to take this beautiful thing that God has given me, this dominion, dominion over all these things. I want to break it. I want to take this beautiful oneness that I have with my wife. They were naked and they were unashamed. And I want to break it. I want to take this perfect relationship that I have with God, that I get to walk with him in the cool of the evening, because I know what that sounds like when I hear it. I've had that, and I want to break it. It's mine, and I want to break it. Our relationship with God is broken. Man, as he currently exists, not as he is supposed to exist, but as he currently exists, man is broken. And we are not, and I'm... I'm uh, taking an analogy from uh, Greg Kokel's The Story of Reality, but it's, it's wonderfully apt. We're not broken like machines that have a screw loose or need another quart of oil. We are in some ways. Right? There's, there's no doubt in my mind that the fall has harmed the genetic code of man. We have genetic diseases. Right? The fall has... One of the effects of the fall was the effect that we see on nature. Thorns, briars, these things are an effect of the fall. It's not how it's supposed to be. The earth was supposed to be easy to till. Work was, not, work was supposed to be meaningful. Right? We, we always have this, this discussion at, at my work. We always have this discussion amongst each other. And we say, yeah, I'm, I'm not supposed to enjoy my job. They wouldn't pay me for it if I enjoyed it. But man is supposed to enjoy the work. The work is not supposed to be hard. Right, so, yes, in ways, we are like machines that are broken. Th that's true. The analogy is true as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. We are more like prodigals. And that word is perfect. If you look it up, right, we all know the story of the prodigal son, but look up the definition of the word. See what it means. We are prodigals. And we are in need of not, not a... a you know, fixing the setting on the machine, not pushing the right buttons. We are prodigals in need of redemption. We have a huge debt we can't pay. And in, in the, the classical and the ancient worldview, when you had a debt you couldn't pay, you're sold into slavery to pay it back. We have sold ourselves into slavery because it sounded so good. You will be like God. We are adulterers. 
And, and that word is, again, perfect, right? Adultery, of course, we know in, in the context of marriage, in the context of a sexual union between man and wife, adultery is cheating on your spouse. True. And we are that in God's eyes. We are that. You just heard it from the prophet Malachi. But we have also, to, to adulterate something means to make a mix that is, that is wrong somehow. Right? Flour is, is meant to be eaten. It's food. Right? Don't mix sawdust with it. Sawdust is not meant to be eaten. That's adulterating it. We're adulterers in every sense of the word in need of reconciliation. Right? Not just machines with screw loose. We are rebels. We joined that original rebel. The rebel who came into the garden was, was a, a, some sort of divine being, very real, not, not, a, not a myth, not a Jungian archetype, you know, a very real being who is, who, who knows why he did it. He's probably angry that he didn't get to bear the Selim Elohim. He didn't get to take dominion. He didn't like the special relationship that we had with God, so he sought to break it, and break it he did by encouraging us to break it. It wasn't his to break. We made the choice. He just pushed the right buttons. Oh, you'll be like God. We are rebels because we've joined him. We're rebels in need of a pardon. And we are usurpers to usurp, to take authority that does not belong to us. We are usurpers in need of amnesty. Rebellion, usurpation, sedition. In, in civilized governments the world over, these are punished by death. That's what man is. It sounds kind of bad. And it is bad. We can look around at the world and see that there's, there's no hope in man. Again, as we get smarter and smarter and learn more things and we have better technology, we're just better and better at making a mess of things. Don't get me wrong, I love the technology. But it doesn't seem to be making us better moral beings. That's what man is. That's man. Broken, broken, broken. And it sounds like bad news. It is bad news. But uh, there is hope. And uh, that's where we'll start next week. Because the hope actually also comes from a man. True man. Because the mess that mankind made needs to be cleaned up by man. So next week we're going to talk about that man. The one and only. So we'll leave it there for this week. That's man.